0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It is the first Monday of a major 2021. Roll on, Garros. If you know the channel, you know what this means. The first Monday is always a mailbag. So we're going to get right into it. I posted on the YouTube community tab on the homepage of my channel, and I tweeted on my Twitter account at Gil underscore Gross. Make sure you are following if you're on Twitter. So again, I want to jump right in. Uh, there's about... 15 questions that I pulled aside here, and uh, I'm going to try to get to as many as I can. So we'll start with Brandon Daniels, who says two questions, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of the first one. Uh, One, your first thoughts on Naomi Osaka's withdrawal and what Grand Slam should be thinking about for future events if this happens again? So I did get a couple on this it's become a massive story, something that's a lot bigger than tennis, something that has transcended mainstream media in a big way. And uh, it it left me feeling very, very sad for Naomi Osaka as an individual, for the sport as a whole, which quite frankly has, and, and rightly so, this is a very bad look for it. The fact that this issue couldn't be resolved. If you would have told me on Monday, after Osaka won her first round match, that this disagreement, this controversy, this this clash, whatever you want to call it, would result in Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the tournament or being defaulted from the tournament, either or. If you would have told me that, I wouldn't have believed you. I would have said, how in the world... Are cooler heads not going to prevail here? How in the world is there not going to be a middle ground reached? How is this going to escalate from the point where it was, where before Monday, when the Grand Slam board released that statement, it felt like it was dying? That is my main frustration as a fan. That is the main mistake that we can look at this Systematically, there's but but again, I don't want to lose sight of just the human tragedy here, so I'm being asked to analyze the situation. I understand that, uh, but ultimately, I'm also super sad for Naomi Osaka because she just withdrew from a grand slam because that's where her mental is at. Um, it was sad in the beginning, also the fact that she was in a place where she didn't, she felt so much dread when it came to speaking publicly to the media, that means you're in a pretty bad place. And this uh this is obviously another uh another step in that direction. So hopefully she feels better and and that's first and foremost, but um I do wanna kind of go through how I'm processing this. When Osaka released her original statement, I wanted to make sure to get two things across empathy for Naomi. And a reinforcement of the importance that athletes make themselves available to the media, which I do believe is important and part of the sports economic model and a part of what players are expected to do, in my opinion, rightly so. Well, the Grand Slam board completely ignored the first part, just disregarded it. The empathy part, the part where where this is an individual who is asking for some accommodation, um, or maybe asking is the wrong word, but is saying that she needs some accommodation, is saying that she accepts the penalties, and is saying that she needs to do this thing for her mental health. There were parts of the statement that I didn't that I that I disagreed with. Again, her call to action, her overall analysis of of the relationship between players and media, I disagreed with that. But when it came to her as an individual, that was the crux of it. I need this accommodation for my mental health, and I will accept the penalties. And if the Grand Slam board had a, a sliver of empathy, it would have been, okay, that's fine. Because what were the actual effects of this? The actual effects. If Naomi Osaka did not speak to media, she played her matches. Come on, come on, nothing, right? What would have actually, what were the detrimental effects towards Roland Garros 2021 when Osaka didn't do this? It didn't become a movement. None of the players hopped on board with Osaka. It did not start a strike. None of the players said, oh, you know what? I'm also gonna do what Osaka's doing. If, if something, if a movement was happening, I could see the need for the governing bodies to put an end to that and and try to enforce, hey, this can't happen. We need our athletes speaking to speak in the media. But one person, one and the superstar, a superstar, by the way, says, I'm not going to speak to media for this tournament, one tournament, and I accept the penalties And that could not be accommodated when mental health was at the uh, was at the center of it is so unbelievably and unnecessarily adversarial and insensitive. So the Grand Slam board dug in their heels, fanned the flames, added to the media frenzy and declared war on their athletes. Osaka was not up for a war. She didn't want a war. She couldn't have a war. So she she waved the white flag. That's my read on what happened here. Um, This didn't seem like outcome based decision making to me. It seemed like a decision make. It seemed like a decision made by the Grand Slam board with optics and power and leverage in mind that that they felt like they were getting stepped on by Naomi Osaka when really they were not. Their policy was not getting stepped on, in my opinion. It was a one time thing. It, it it was that was it. It was one player not speaking to the media for one tournament. And instead of being accommodating and empathetic for a struggling athlete, it took a sledgehammer to an ant. That's what threatening default. Default for a player not speaking in press conferences. That's what that is. It is taking a sledgehammer to an ant. It shoot away one of the superstars of the sport, looked completely immoral in the process. As a fan, my frustration is this was going away. This was gone by Monday afternoon if they did not release a public statement and threaten to default Naomi Osaka. It was going away. We would not have been talking about it. It would not have been a long-term issue. It would not have sparked a player revolt against the press. It would have done nothing. It would have gone away. And they just couldn't let it sit. And and that's my main frustration as a fan. My main reaction paired with empathy towards Naomi Osaka. All right. Um, That is that. And let us move on a little bit quicker on the questions from now on. How would you advise team to approach the upcoming grass season? New Day asks. It's not his favorite surface, but neither were the hard courts before his breakthrough Masters 1000 at Indian Wells in 2019. What can he change to make himself a genuine threat at SW19? I yeah, I mean if uh, there's a there's a laundry list of things is the main problem. I think the main problem for Team on Grass and I think Dominic would agree is his return of serve. This was the worst I've seen him return on clay in a really long time here in 2021 in his brief showings at Madrid, at Rome and at Roland Garros. Normally, the return is fine on clay court, but he was really kind of lost when it comes to strategy and intention on the return. So that's the the technical thing that was always going to be the number one obstacle for him at Wimbledon. But right now, I think that there are some bigger picture issues that actually transcend surface and it's not about grass he could be playing on any surface and obviously he he needs to find motivation and i think he needs to find a little bit more fitness i don't know that he is the uh the physical the physical beast that he was in 2020 he just doesn't look like it to me and it, it's hard to say maybe that's mental maybe that's just uh that he's not quite going after the ball with the same intensity or moving with the same intensity it could be mental it could be physical impossible to tell but he's got to raise that uh the the explosivity which um again could either be a mental thing or a physical thing it's really hard to tell another question on team comes from Ali. Ali asks, "Next steps for a team? Does he play grass and probably suffer an early loss at Wimbledon, which sets him back further, or does he come back on the hard courts?" I think he. I don't want to. I don't want to say what he should do with his schedule, uh, but I will say is this: I don't think that we can view losses as anything that is a long term damaging thing for Dominic team at this point losses are going to probably be necessary and a lot of the time when a player turns around something like this around it's when they hit rock bottom it's when they lose and it stings like heck because you know the three losses that Dominic team had in slam finals before he broke through at the U.S. Open, at the French Open twice to Nadal, and then at the Aussie to Djokovic. Were those damaging long-term, or did those put a chip on his shoulder that made him work harder at every step of the way? So I would say it's the losses that are actually going to get him out of this. It's when is he going to get so sick uh, when he leaves the court after a loss that he's going to find his spark and his motivation um and his love for for training and working and improving like like he used to have so uh i I wouldn't say like he he shouldn't play Wimbledon because he might lose that's not the not the mentality I'd have for team all right. Let's find the next one uh, from Nell Tennis. Roger's performance assessment, please. Roger Federer with uh, a really entertaining blowout victory over Dennis Istomin in straight sets at at the, the French on Monday. So earlier today, as of this recording. And Istomin doesn't do much when it comes to disruption. He is uh, a player who doesn't make a lot of mistakes and doesn't do anything uh, poorly, but also doesn't really have much in the bag to try to bother his opponents. And the result was a, a Roger Federer who almost had a blank canvas to just paint on. You know, he had so many options on the court. He said it after the match that he felt like he had so many options. And just mixing in the serve volley, the drop shot, the the different kinds of drive forehands with extra pace, or brushing it um, short angle, the array of shot making that Federer was able to put on display against Isteman was uh, a great reminder of why so many people Fell in love with Roger Federer's game as soon as they saw him play for the first time, and you know o- over the years that 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 turned him into the um, the powerhouse when it comes to um, popularity in this sport that he is. So there was uh, all of this. To, that was a very fancy way to say that the highlights in this match were were entertaining, um, and he was moving really great, and he looked good, and he looked relaxed. And I found what he told John Wertheim after the match fascinating on Tennis Channel. It was such a, an incredibly thoughtful interview that he gave Wertheim. And he said in Geneva, it felt like there were a lot of things going on that were, that were clouding his mind and distracting him. And he cited simple things like the serve clock and uh, the towels in the corner as things that were really bothering him and taking up headspace, Roger Federer hadn't played. And I don't know what the what the deal was when, when he played in Dubai, actually. Um, but Roger Federer hadn't played with the, the, the serve clock or, you know, without ball kids. It, he doesn't have a lot of repetitions um, playing that way. So... Those simple things that should just be muscle memory seem to distract him in Geneva. That's what he said, at least. And uh, I just thought that was very insightful. Just, I mean, if that doesn't scream, the man needs match play. When you're getting distracted by the serve clock and towels, (laughs) you need match play. You're not match tough. And that was no surprise for Roger Federer, but uh, he said that his mind was much calmer on the court. Um, against Dennis Histeman. So really, really great performance against an opponent that gives him the opportunity to look great. Let's be real. So let's see how he uh, he continues to look. And uh, one more on Roger Federer, uh, which will transition nicely here. This one's from Rahul. Gil, if Roger is able to reach the fourth round and meet Matteo Berrettini, why do you think Matteo would be a heavy favorite? The last few times Federer played him, the scores were not close, with Fed winning comfortably. If Roger reaches the round of 16, don't you think he would be in uh, in in a in form that would be sufficient enough to play with Berrettini the way he did in 2019? Um, hold on, just a sec, guys. All right, the reason I look. Well, I could revisit this later maybe in the preview I brushed aside Roger a little bit too with too much you know nonchalant vibes I will revisit it um, later however with that being said, it's the fitness I'm worried about to really answer your question when when he is not ready to play any of these tournaments until okay okay Geneva And that's the first tournament that he's ready to play. And Ivan Lubitsch says, well, it's because of fitness. And that's why he can't play these clay court events because he's not yet fit enough. I'm just doubting on clay in best of five if he's ready to do that physically. And that's the main reason why I basically implied that Berrettini would be a heavy favorite. I still feel that way. And then just track record, when you look at his year, the interesting thing about this is that Basile Shvili and Pablo Andujar both went on to do really good things, both uh, for in Basile Shvili's case and... Uh, moving forward in the tournament Andujar won a couple matches in Geneva, I believe as well after beating Roger Federer and then just had that win over Dominic team. So these players have had success and the losses have aged well, so to speak with that being said, he, he comes into this tournament one and two on the season and look, it's, it's Nicholas Basilashvili and Pablo Andujar. This is not Dominic team. This is not Alexander. You know, these are not the elite players. It's certainly not Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic and it, Let me just use the name here. Those players are not Matteo Berrettini. Berrettini is a huge step up from from those guys. He just is. So that's why. (laughs) All right. Um, This one is for uh, for the YouTube people. Those who listen on podcasts, you guys are going to be confused. All right. So here's one from Gold Wolf. Okay. Ready for this? Ready for this? Uh, will the Choco Squirrels be crying into their gluten free milk when Goat Doll claims his 21st slam? Runawayovich is cry babyovich when Rafa rules Paris once again. Vamos, baby. And then Gold Wolf replies that impression is so damn good. I was wondering if I wrote that. There are now two Gold Wolves. There are two of them. What is going on? Okay. Sorry for that tangent. Um this from Kayla Pereira can Medvedev make the quarterfinals that is my pick I am picking that Medvedev to the quarters Let's see how Christian Godin looks again like I I am not a huge believer in Christian Godin as a top 15 level player outside of the specific set of conditions that he plays so well on uh on South American or even European clay at altitude I'm just not a. I'm not a massive believer in his game outside of those conditions. I think he's solid, but I, I'm just not. I'm not huge on him. So, with that being said, the reason I want to mention him is because he he would be apparent. What what would seem to be the biggest threat between Medvedev and the quarterfinal and Garin is a player who is incredibly speedy, has amazing speed. So. I think that that is something that could bother Medvedev. I'm interested to see how he plays against Tommy Paul, who covers the court at least and defends uh, certainly better than than Sasha Bublik because that's the kind of player that's going to bother Medvedev more than anything on clay. Is the player who's going to get a lot of balls back, challenge his offense, make Medvedev hit through the court uh, from the middle, in the midcourt, on the forehand. Um. Godin is someone who covers the court really well, so maybe that would trouble Medvedev. So, uh, we'll see, we'll see, but but yes, that that's my pick Medvedev to the quarters. All right, this is a, another one just real quick. This is from Gold Wolf. I don't know which one, apparently. So, uh, he writes, So, what is your degree in, big guy? I think you mentioned it before, but I forgot, and others want to know too. My degree. I'm gonna make a video on this. I have to do a channel update. I'm gonna tell you guys a little something about about the future and the plans. But yes, I I graduated college, uh, Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Um, again, I'll I'll talk about this a little bit more at some point. But uh, my my degree is broadcast journalism, broadcast and digital journalism from uh, from Newhouse, and. Some people call me a tennis journalist. I don't engage in any journalism. So I don't consider myself a tennis journalist, but I am trained in journalism. So I could do journalism if I, if I so choose, but I, I I don't know. I, people sometimes call me a tennis journalist and I don't know if that is really accurate. I don't think it is. Here's one from Adrian. What does it mean to quote, think on a tennis court? I recently read an article about football or soccer that players barely having time to think before they have to act the right way on the field. How applicable is this to tennis? Considering that there's much less variables in a tennis match than a football match, can players consciously think about where they want to hit a shot in the time that it takes for the ball to reach them? Or do they have to move on instincts that are conditioned by training uh, before the game? So... there's, there's a lot here. Um, what does it mean to think on a tennis court? Well, you cannot think about execution. You cannot think about technique or your results are generally going to suffer. So when it comes to things that are, are constant, and I'm not just talking about stroke mechanics, but, uh, footwork recovering back to the center of the court after hitting a shot, split stepping. There are just an infinite number of things happening in the body biomechanically that are happening so quickly that the answer is no, you do not think. It is completely instinctual. It was. It is completely muscle memory. But then there is a decision-making process. And when it comes to making those quick decisions, yes, you absolutely do think and you have to process a couple different things. You have to process, as soon as you hit the ball, you have to process your outgoing ball. And based on your outgoing ball, you're now making calculations about, immediately, you're making calculations about what your opponent will be able to do or not able to do with that ball. So for example, um, if you hit a really fantastic and tremendous shot, you are going to anticipate the short ball that is going to affect the way you move after you hit your shot. If you hit a really terrible shot that lands right in the middle of the court and Rafael Nadal is loading up for a forehand, you are probably going to make some decisions about your footwork and your court position. And you're going to put yourself in a position to defend. So outgoing ball is the first decision maker. Um, then incoming ball becomes a decision maker. Pretty self-explanatory, but my opponent has just hit the ball. Um, how, how is the ball? Is it, is it fast? Is it deep? Does it have width? Does it have spin? What kind of spin? All these kinds of things. And then you assess court position, both your court position and your opponent's court position. With all of those variables, at least those, especially the latter three variables, taken into consideration, now you need to choose a shot. You need to decide what your intention is. You need to decide how you are going to execute your intention. So there are all of these decisions. There is a lot, to me, there's a lot of thinking on the tennis court. Some players think less. Some players overthink and their decision making is poor. It's delayed. Uh, it can be a struggle. You can have too many tools in the shed. Uh, it has to do with confidence. Decision making comes down to confidence, with with uh, just how how quickly you're able to make these decisions and how infrequently you second guess yourself. So so yeah, I think that's what it means to think on a tennis court. It's to take all of those variables in a split second. And then to come to a decision about what you're trying to do on the court. And if you're not thinking about those things, you're you're playing a, a mindless version of tennis that you should try to avoid. All right, this next one is from Hold the LFC. That's a Manchester United thing, right? I have no idea what LFC stands for, but I'm pretty sure it's Manchester United. And I'm not supposed to say, man, you, right? That's like a really dorky American thing, I believe. I think so. All right. Would you sacrifice—oh, I'm showing you the wrong thing right now. Would you sacrifice your chances of making a deepish run in a major to win the week before ATP 250 if you're a rising youngster? Referring to Sinner in Australia and Corda here, even though he'd have lost to Steph, but uh, was round four last year. True. Unfortunate for Sebi Corda, who's out in straight sets to Martinez in the first round today, and this comes on the heels of his title in Parma. So this is a great question, and my answer is, for the most part, yes. I think I would sacrifice my chances of of making that deepish run um, if I'm a youngster, and I'm glad you added in that qualifier. I think that titles are, I think that it's an invaluable experience to lift a trophy. Ask Felix Oje Aliassim, ask Dennis Shapovalov how how difficult the, the end of these tournaments are. And I think if you're going to give yourself a chance to be the last one standing at the end of the tournament, to be the last player in the locker room, and to play a final with the trophy on the line and to win it that belief is going to help you down the line now there's going to be a major for for these guys Corda is going to get to play wimbledon in 3 weeks sinner get you know gets to play the french open now just survived his first round match against ph uh, Herbert. but when is the next time you are going to be in a final with a chance for a title no guarantees. You just don't know when you're going to be in that spot again. So I like the the youngsters playing, um, playing more often, maybe even before a major. If, if they're going to win the title, to me, that's a positive experience for them. With that being said, I have noticed such a clear and distinct pattern that players who play a week before a major just don't do very well. I've noticed it. Uh, to the to the fullest extent, really, and all I can think about right now is Novak Djokovic, and it, you know, it, is he going to just be the exception to that rule because he is exceptional? He is Novak Djokovic. He didn't have to sweat much to beat the caliber of opponent that he played. He had one three setter, got a little tight in the final in the second set, but Novak rolled. So. Does that count? Is that anything like, like, did he exert the kind of mental energy that Seb Korda did? No, Um, not even close. With that being said, I have an eye on it. I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't have an eye on it. I'd be lying if I told you that I think Djokovic should have played Belgrade too. I I really don't, but uh, let's see how it plays out. Let's see how it plays out couple quick ones. This one from Bruno Alves. You didn't mention Alcaraz in predictions. Do you think he can beat Rublev in round three? Can't go too in-depth here. I'm not going to go too in-depth, but not really. I was impressed with his round one victory today, but I think Alcaraz, I can't think of too many things that he does better than Andre Rublev. I can't. It would be uh, a a pretty similar clash. I think Rublev would really enjoy the ad-side exchange, which is is something that Rublev is very masterful at getting it to the ad side cross court assuming this match happens right and i don't like that matchup Alcaraz's backhand against Rublev's cross court backhand slash inside out forehand i don't like that for Alcaraz i think it'd be a problem uh Rublev has the serving edge as well um so you know i just don't think Al- i don't think Alcaraz is is ready for that test yet Let's end on this. It's a big three question from the lulls 14. What are your thoughts about which of the big three is better at adapting and winning in different ways? My thoughts nowadays are that Rafa has separated himself in this area, particularly because his play style now is so different from his early years where he would grind himself to wins through sheer determination and by reaching and defending every ball. Nowadays, he has such a varied tool set, having worked on his backhand slice and S&V to great effect in the latter half of his career. Lovely words on Rafa's adaptation, and I pretty much agree with you, but the missing piece is why. Novak Djokovic's body has not deteriorated or aged or diminished. Deteriorated might be too strong a word. It has not diminished as much as Rafa Nadal's has. So by necessity, Nadal has absolutely been forced to adapt more. Whereas Roger Fetter, let's talk about him. He already had many of the tools that are required to age gracefully. So Fetter started with those tools and Nadal developed those tools and Djokovic still has the legs, uh, the body and... It's it's incredible. It's uh, you know, Djokovic's body is a marvel, and and obviously the way he takes care of it and the work he's put in, but the body is is incredible. So, uh, that is my thoughts on that. All right. Um, remember, Monday match analysis is available on all podcast platforms. A huge deal for me. It helps the podcast grow if you leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The link to that is in the is in the description. And make sure you subscribe or follow on those podcast platforms as well. Um, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks.